Okay, let's get into it. Tonight's share was titled The Whispers of Unity, Safeguarding the Unfathomable, Ensuring This Unprecedented Achtus Doesn't Fade Away. Rishmul Reichman is a best-selling author, international speaker, and founder of the CEO of Self Mastery Academy. He's also a business executive and leadership coach consultant and a very unique approach based on Torah values and principles. He has studied at Harvard, Chicago Reitz, and Yeshiva University. His best-selling book, The Journey to the Ultimate Self, serves as an inspiring gateway to deeper Jewish thought to enjoy more of Rabbi Reichman's contact to contact him or to learn more about his services, go to his website, shmuelreichman.com. Shmuel, thank you for coming back. Again, the floor is yours. Pleasure is all mine. Usher and Menachem, first a huge shkoyach to what you both do. It's it's unbelievable. It's itself as it brings out this unity to Klai Yisrael. Now, I'm going to take the Tony Robbins hat partially off tonight um, and put a little bit of a Balmachshava hat on. I start 99.9999 at infinitum of my percent of my shirim and lectures and presentations with the story. But I'm going to make an exception this one time because I think the greatest story in recent history is a story that we're all experiencing right now. The past, the past four or five months has been a combination of the most tragic and the most inspiring in about every way. And I've, you know, I spent my life teaching all parts of Kaleidoscope, the world as a whole as well, but really all parts of Kaleidoscope. And what we've been experiencing, what we've been witnessing, ever since the greatest tragedy in recent Jewish history, is the greatest kind of blurring of boundaries of classic hashkafos and worldviews, ideology, political perspectives, et cetera, within Klai Israel. And it's just one question that everyone's basically had from the beginning, is how do I put everything else on hold and how do I help the Jewish people? And, you know, the, I, the most inspiring for a lot of people is the religious and non-religious, where a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of the, the non-religious Jews kind of felt connected. But I, I'll tell you a much deeper layer. A much deeper layer is you know, I've spent probably the past decade teaching all different areas of Kleinstrom, whether it's the right-wing community, the Haredi community, the more Hamish, uh, open-minded right-wing community. Uh, then you have the YU, OU type of community where I have my YU background, got smicha from YU, got a bunch of degrees from YU. I speak in the elite intellectual world with my Harvard, University of Chicago background. I speak in the Kirov world all the time. I do a lot of work in the Jewish business world, political commentary world. What we've experienced since October 7th is something I've never seen in my life. And it's something that I think a lot of people never saw, which is, an, I would say, a reflection of a much deeper topic and a much deeper problem that lies at the very heart and core of what it means to be alive, but also for everyone listening right now, what it means to be a Jew. And what you realize from this is that the problem is reflected because of the partial solution that we've been experiencing. Because for the past four or five months, everyone's felt united. We've had a common enemy. The enemy is external. Everyone's been on the same team. Everyone's come together. And it's basically the world against the Jewish people. It's inspiring. It's powerful. What's happened for the past 50, 100, 1,000 years is basically moments of inspiration, 
right? A day, an hour, a week where something like this happens and then you revert back to normal, right? So the classic formula of the, the, the psyche of a human being is you have your normal identity, you have your family, your community, your ideology, your worldview, your way of life, how you live your life, what you're doing, could be your profession, could be your metaphysical outlook on life, it could be uh, the relationships you're in, the rabbi you have, the yeshiva you went to, the seminary you went to, etc. And then there's a terrorist attack. Then there's a uh, something, you know, whether it's Mayron, whether it's a, a bus bombing, whether something happens, and all of a sudden Clive Shaw wakes up, right? It's kind of like momentary awakening from our hypnosis of the normal state of existence. And there's this unconscious, unquestionable sense of Clyusrel is one, Clyusrel needs me, Clyusrel needs us. Just put everything on hold for a minute. Everyone davens, everyone says to Helen, everyone gets the, notif- the notice of what's going on. And there's this like inspiring sensation of like something's happening. Something's different. Something kind of like the, the norm has been ruptured. But then whether it's an hour, 24 hours or a week, it becomes a memory. As in, we remember when there was a moment of this. And I would say that for those who've had their pull, their finger on the pulse for the past four or five months, the first week was the most insane thing you've experienced. If you were kind of aware of everything going on, social media, WhatsApp groups, whether you were involved, whether you're hearing about it, whether you were going to things in your school, in your community, whatever it was, you felt that this time was different. And the reason why it was different is because unlike every other time in recent history, the tragedy didn't let up, right? So normally there's a momentary tragedy. Everyone wakes up, the tragedy is gone, the damage has been done, and we kind of feel the damage for a day, a week, maybe somewhat for a month. But when it comes to what just happened, it got worse and worse and worse. The achtos got more intense, more intense, more intense. We needed more help from everyone, not less. Things were getting more exponentially potent and impactful and tragic and uncertain and crazy. And people were doing more heroic things. Uh, all of Clash was coming together on the battlefront in Eretz Yisrael. Everyone's trying to fund it financially. Everyone's davening. Everyone's learning to hell him. Everyone's trying to make a him. Everyone's taking on extra learning. Everyone's doing extra chesed. Everyone's just questioning whether Mashiach's here is coming, happened already. Everything's crazy. And you kind of wait for things to get back to normal and they don't. And now the new normal is this abnormal, which is strange because it's this kind of constant uncertainty. But for the 99%, this has become normal enough that you can numb out the craziness of the initial stage. And now it's become the new abnormal normal. And for people who had their finger on the pulse from the beginning, you can kind of feel the intensity of the achtos slowly simmer, slowly retract and slowly go back to normal boundaries, even though it's not the same as it was before, October 7th it just gets you wondering about the the same fundamental questions, which is basically why has Achtis always been a struggle within Klai Yisrael? And it's very easy to say, like, extreme, like, I believe in Torah, they don't believe in Torah, religious versus non-religious, that's not true. 
right? It's every strand of Judaism. There are people who focus more on halacha. There are people who focus more on Western self-development. There are people who focus more on learning Gemara in depth. There are people who focus more on philosophy and Kabbalistic, Hasidic type of worldviews. And then there are people who focus more on the importance of Eretz Yisrael. Then there are people who focus on their strand of Hasidus and their strand of this and their strand of this. And there's a million different variations of Klai Yisrael. And if you have your Abbey and your community and your Kehillah and you're this and you're that, there's this kind of self-identified Hagdara and boundary that creates a fundamental level of disunity where the question becomes like, what is the ideal? Like, what would the ideal client's role look like? Like, how is how how can one argue that this is the ideal? And then the more fundamental question is, what is the ideal? And how do we get this way? And then the question is always, why? What is the mechanics of what always happens? As in, if you take a hundred tragedies that Clashel's experienced in the past couple of decades. It's always the same formula. And this is just a hyper-expanded, more potent version of the same formula. So it's not that this is so fundamentally different as much as this is on different scale of quality and quantity. And it's kind of just scaled to the greatest degree that we've experienced in recent history. So what I want to open up, and this is this is a vulnerable conversation because this is, you know, Coach Menachem, we're going to get real. Um, but this is not an easy conversation because this is this gets at the very cornerstone of how people build their lives, how people build their identities, how if you want to go into a bonus, this is how you get a job. If you want to lead a community, this is how it works. Like this is how class is structured. And you want to ask a lot of questions. Number one is how do we improve? Number two is how to get this way. Number three is what is the ideal? Is it just one blob of Klaishol? Klaishol, it's never really been that way, so why not? And is there a deeper reason behind that? And I want to frame this, you know, not getting back to, I don't I usually introduce with a story, we'll have a story now. So I want to share one of my favorite stories. It's a story of a person who had a dream of a giant treasure that was buried somewhere in France. So he thought nothing of it, went through his day, went back to sleep, and then he had the same dream. And he's getting a little <laughs> suspicious, never had the same dream twice in a row. And then he has the dream a third time. So he says, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to book a ticket. I'm going to figure out what's going on. So in his dream, it was always under the same drawbridge, finds out where the bridge is, flies out across the world, goes to France, goes to the drawbridge, starts digging. And the guard of the drawbridge comes and says, excuse me, what are you doing? You're trespassing, you're damaging public property, and I'm going to have to arrest you if you don't stop. And he figured, you know, I came all the way here. I might as well just be vulnerable and open. And he says, you know what, I'll tell you the truth. The truth is that I've had a dream for the past couple of nights that there's a treasure buried underneath this bridge. And I just came here to try to figure out if it's actually buried here. So the guard starts laughing, and he says, <laughs> if I listen to every single dream I've had, you know what? For the past three nights, I've had a dream that in Jersey, on 2793 West Chase Avenue, there's a giant treasure buried in the backyard. You know, I, I don't go flying across the world to pursue every single dream I have. So this guy's thinking to himself, wait a second, that's my address. Gets the first flight back, flies back to his house, goes to his backyard, starts digging, finds the treasure. And 
It's a, it's a famous story that's told in a hundred different ways, but the idea is that very often what you spend your whole life looking for is actually what you already had when you set off to find that which you're looking for. And very often the journey in life is not so much going out there, but going deeper within. There's a famous idea that the first Russian astronaut, when he came back down, people asked him, did you, did you find God? As if God was some gray bearded man in the sky that was waiting for us to come here. And he started laughing and said, no, of course I didn't find God. Because a lot of people think that, you know, the truth is out there, that God is out there somewhere in the sky. When, you know, the deeper idea is that the deeper you go into yourself, the deeper you go inside of yourself into the world of ideas and then deeper beyond the world of ideas, that's where you start finding Hashem. That's where you start finding the truth. That's not a thing out there so much as the source of things and the access point that you have to that is going deeper within yourself. That's why the essence of wisdom is self-awareness. It's going deeper inside yourself. And... That's really the essence of life is that we're all yearners. We're all searching. And we're not searching for something out there. We're searching for something deeper within ourselves. When it comes to achdas, it's the same thing. You know, there's two types of achdas. There's achdas where people don't fight. So it's the absence of conflict. And then there's the achdas of yichud, of oneness. Oneness, not where there's two parts that are connected, but where there's real synergy where there's real synthesis, where you get to the root that is beyond the sum of its parts. And the question is, what is this, this deep rachthus? What is this deep, inspiring, kind of heebie-jeebie, intangible achthus that seems so inaccessible? And why does it seem so difficult? As in, why... Why is it fleeting? Why do we always tap into it for a moment during these tragedies, but we never maintain it? So what I want to do, and I want to frame this discussion, because this is not, this is Bashir to answer that question, because that's, I wouldn't say the unanswerable question as much as it takes a lifetime to delve into the world of truth, to try to really take it seriously. Because what I love about everyone who's here right now and in these types of conversations is that there's different types of shir. There's shirim where you go to the shir with the answer that you already have, looking for the speaker to reinforce what you already think. And then there's the people who go in with a real open mind trying to learn, trying to think. As in, if you got a better paradigm or idea, would you replace the one you currently have? If the truth required you to reshape your life around it, would you reshape your life around the truth or would you only condense and finitize the truth to fit into the life you already have? Because that's why I love, you know, I'm someone who's you call from from birth, but the, the beauty of people who are Bali Chuva, who are, who are seeking to return, so to speak, is they don't pretend like they have the answers. They know that they don't know. So they seek to learn and grow. Whereas people who think they have the answers, there's no greater disservice you can do to yourself because then you can't grow, you can't learn. So what I'm about to open up is probably something that would take thousands and thousands of shirin. But I would say that this is a good introduction into the story of the greatest story of all time. 
And that's the story of the Jewish people. And to frame that, I want to basically frame the essence of a great inspirational story. A great inspirational story is one that we all love, right? Person starts from the bottom, the underdog, it's hard. No one really gives them a chance, but they start to rise and grow. And they have a dream, they have a vision, they have a goal. And as they start to pursue their goal, whether it's to achieve their purpose in life, to get married, to, to arrive at the ultimate truth, to connect to Hashem, to change the world, whatever the journey, whatever the story is, there's always the same step that follows that first stage of inspiration, which is everything seems to fall apart, right? You face a challenge, you face a struggle, things get difficult, and somehow you find a way to persevere. And you find someone to help you and mentor you and you start learning, you start growing, you start achieving, you start building yourself, you start overcoming struggles and you realize the struggles are building you, not breaking you apart. And every time you rip or get ripped apart, you put yourself back together even stronger than before and, and you're almost there. And you, you see yourself getting closer. And the main character of the story is so close and you can literally see it. And all of a sudden, everything falls apart. Everything, you lose everything. And you wonder, what was the purpose of even starting in the first place? It's all worthless. It's all pointless. And there's no, there's no point of even getting back up. Because there's nothing to build upon. Everything's lost. But somehow, you find that willpower, that amuna, that faith. You find the ability to go deeper within yourself. And you muster up the courage. And, the, and you somehow are able to start getting back going. And you realize that everything seemed to fall apart, but it was really just waiting for you to make that last decision to get back up. And somehow you're able to win, save the day, arrive at the destination, et cetera, et cetera. Now that is the Jewish story. And what I want to do now is I want to frame the story of Achtas with the story of the Jewish story. And I want to frame it. That there's a million different starting points that you can go by. Um, you can start with Adam Harishon. You can start with Noach. But we'll take a share to explain why we should start with Avram, but we're going to start with Avram. Avram's journey begins in the middle. Right? We hear Avram's journey starting with Lechacha. But Lechacha is actually, according to Chazal, the middle of Avram's journey. The whole backdrop, the whole foundation, the whole kind of background story, prelude, is a whole different story, which is not Avram's journey that we read in the Torah, but it's Avram's journey, what we'd call the spiritual journey of trying to find out the truth. And the Chazal say that Avram saw a beer delekas, Avram saw a, a building that was on fire. And he, we, Chazal talk about him smashing the idols of his father's house, all these different stories. But essentially, the background story of Avram's story is not the tennis yonos that we see Avram overcoming. The story that we don't hear about is Avram's story towards the infinite. Meaning that when you wake up in your life, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, you start to get a heightened sense of intellect. You start to get a heightened sense of self-awareness and abstractness. You start to realize that you're self-aware and that you're aware of your own existence. You have no idea why you're here. You have no idea why you exist. You have no idea what the truth is. And Avraham's journey is basically a journey of someone who says, what in the world is going on in the world? Why am I here? 
What's my purpose? What is truth? What's the nature of reality? And Avraham goes from a finite world and a finite existence, as the Rambam explains, he uprooted every single attempted foundation of truth and went deeper and deeper to the ultimate root until he said that this finite, limited, corporeal world stems from an infinite, all-perfect, foundational root. And he went to the ultimate source of existence. And the Midrash says that once he realized that the world didn't essentially have its own independent existence, but it actually had a creator, that's when Hashem appeared to Avram and basically said, Lech Lecha. So this, the whole stage of the Torah version of Avram is stage two. The first stage is the journey from the finite to the infinite. For someone who is so trapped in this limited world, who says, I don't care about being socially accepted. I care about the truth. I care about answering the fundamental question of where am I? Why am I? Who am I? What's the nature of existence? What is going on? And I'm going to give up everything to answer those questions. And he realized upon taking that philosophical journey that everything finite comes from the infinite. Everything limited comes from the limitless. Everything that will die and fade away comes from something immortal and ever existent. And he rooted himself back to the ultimate root of existence. But here's where it comes fascinating. Avraham's challenge in terms of the Torah version of Avraham was Hashem basically saying, can you reverse the process? It's easy to be a Buddhist. It's easy to say that the ultimate truth is in the capital T truth, is on the hierarchy of truths, is that the infinite is more true than the finite. The spiritual is more true than the physical. But can you reinfuse the infinite within the finite? Can you live a transcendent life in this physical world? That's the essence, as the Maharal explains, of mitzvah, which is tzavtah, to connect. Can you live an infinitely meaningful life in a physical world, or can you only live a fragmented life by saying, I have to choose one or the other? Because if you have to choose one over the other, you're going to choose the infinite. You're going to choose the spiritual, unless you're going to be an atheist by saying, I'm going to choose the physical over the spiritual and reject the spiritual. I'm going to choose the limited over the limitless and reject the limitless. I'm going to enjoy my finite existence and I'm going to remove the potentiality of something limitless by either justifying it to myself that doesn't exist or saying I prefer the limited, the physical, the finite existence I have. So Avraham's real journey and the Tanisianos we're all about Avraham going from Avram to Avraham, which is going from someone who understands the truth to someone who can live out the truth in this world. And that's why every single thing that Avraham does is expressing the infinite into a finite world, which is the mitzvah brismila, taking the most physical organ in the human being, the most potentially animalistic, and uplifting it to something transcendently spiritual. That's why Avraham's mitzvah, when it comes to um, um, uh, when it came to hosting guests was to help them not do mitzvahs, but specifically to say brachas. Because as the Maharal explains, saying a bracha is recognizing that everything physical that is giving you sustenance is coming from a spiritual source. It's recognizing that it comes from Hashem. So Avraham's journey was essentially becoming Avraham. And that's why 
when Hashem tells him to become the nation of the Jewish people, Avram says, wait a second, I can't. Because if you remember how Rashi explains it, Avram told Hashem, you're telling me that I'm going to become the father of the Jewish people, but I see within the DNA of reality, within the mazolos, that I'm not going to have any children. And Hashem explains to Avram, as Rashi explains, he took him chutzah outside the system of nature and said, Avram, the person who lives an infinite life outside of this world is not going to have children, but your job is to become Avraham. Your job is to become someone who can bring that truth into this world. And this is where it becomes fascinating because Avraham's journey is doing the impossible, which is becoming a person capable of doing the impossible, which is someone who achieved a heightened level of transcendent truth to come back down to this world. And that's the spiritual concept of laughter without getting into the, the depth of that. That's why Yitzchak's name is laughter because he's an impossibility, right? You laugh when a sentence doesn't end the way you elephant, right? You laugh when things are unexpected, things go in an unexpected direction. So Avram became Avraham. By doing that, he was able to bring in the impossible into reality. He brought Yitzchak into existence. And then we get the climax of Avraham and Yitzchak's journey, which is the Akedah. And the Akedah, there's really two parts of the Akedah. One part is for Avraham, the other part is for Yitzchak. For Avraham, Hashem tells Avraham something fascinating before the Akedah journey, which is Lechlecha. Right? It's the second Lechlecha. Why is it the second Lechlecha? Because for Avraham, this was the most fascinating and fundamental challenge one could ever imagine. Avraham's journey was to take the truth that he had basically gone on a journey of connecting to Hashem at the deepest possible level and now came back and through challenge after challenge was able to embody that and transform himself into someone who can live a life of MS in this world. And Hashem then tells him, Lech Lecha, as in everything you just did on your Lechacha journey, you have one final challenge. Are you willing to give it all up? Meaning what? Meaning if Avraham carries through with the Akedah, what happens? You lose Yitzchak, which means you lose your continuity. You lose your future. You lose the ability to continue the legacy of everything you've built on a fundamental level. As in your child, your progeny, your continuation will cease to exist. And when you die, you will cease to exist. Number two, everything you embodied will also cease to exist. As in the MS, a life of synthesis, a living life of truth in this world. If you kill your son, you will fundamentally oppose everything you've developed your entire life as an embodiment of living out the truth, of living out chesed, of living out someone who expresses truth through how they express themselves physically. And again, we can give 25 shirim on the Akedah, but the fundamental challenge was this. If you're willing to give it up, you can keep it. Right? Because Avram was willing to give it up, he was willing to do the Akedah. That was the only challenge. Are you willing to do it? Within the, uh, that's why retroactively, Chazal say that within the words that Hashem 
told Avraham was never an actual requirement to fulfill the Akedah, and that was how Hashem never told him, do the Akedah, don't do the Akedah. The entire point was to see if Avraham was willing to give up what he thought was the truth, whatever Hashem said was the truth, because here's the real distinction. If Avraham's not willing to do the Akedah, it means that he would rather hold on to the truth that he had obtained than to live out the truth that Hashem told him to express, which really means that Avram would be serving himself, not Hashem. But if you're willing to give up your entire life's work and everything you've devoted yourself to for the sake of the truth, it shows that you're not doing this for yourself, you're doing it for Hashem. And if you're willing to give it all up, then you get to keep it. It's the most powerful thing. And this is something which almost every leader needs to really think about, is are you doing this for your ego, for yourself, for your own sense of self-esteem, for your sense of legacy and how people perceive you? Or are you doing this because you actually want to live a life of truth? If you actually want to live a life of truth, you'll do whatever that is. If you want to do it for yourself, you'll make sure to structure everything and contain it into a way that works best for you. So when Avram is willing to give up the truth that he had lived his life for, for the sake of what Hashem told him to do, which by definition means the truth, that's when he got to keep the truth that he lived his life for. And Yitzchak survived. But here's the other side of it. For Yitzchak, the question is not, are you willing to give up your life's work for the truth? The, the question is, are you willing to die for the truth? And that's a very different question. Because what's the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to live a life of purpose, a life of truth. And the highest value on the, on the hierarchy of values is truth. So if you would rather live than live a life of truth, that means that you'd, you value life more than truth, which means that you've essentially deconstructed the hierarchy of values and you value your own existence rather than true existence, because you would rather live outside the realm of truth than live a life of truth. That's the whole principle of the is that Hashem tells, and it's brought down in Sanhedrin and, and Yoma and Ipsachim, that for all the mitzvahs in the Torah, Hashem says that you should live by them, not die but for them, meaning you're allowed to violate any mitzvah, any commandment to save your life, except for the big three. Over the Zara, Gilirayas, and Shri Chusamim. Idolatry, adultery, and murder. Why? The concept is, is something along the lines of violating those averis are such an egregious violation of the fundamentals of truth that it's better to die and not walk outside the world of truth than to violate those and live. So the question essentially that Hashem is asking Yitzchak is, are you willing to give up your life for the truth? And we can give, I give a three-hour share on this in terms of where Hamas corrupts us to the ultimate extreme, where they fundamentally value death and they fundamentally pursue death to the point of hating life so that the purpose is to die and leave this world as opposed to live a life of truth. But the question is not, do you want to leave this world? Do you want to die for the truth? As the Rambam says, is a, is a chiv, as in you have to live by the truth. The purpose of life is not to die for the truth, it's to live by the truth. But the only way you can live by the truth is to value the truth so much that you'd rather die than live outside the realm of truth. So what does Yitzchak say? Yitzchak says, yes, I'm willing to die for the truth. 
And he tells Hashem, that's why it's called Akedash Yitzchak. It's not Avraham's challenge, that's the, the real foundation of it. It's Yitzchak's willing to bind himself, knowing that fundamentally he won't be able to resist the temptation to want to live, asking Avraham to tie him down. Because what happens when he gets tied down, he'll be able to follow through with his commitment to live a life of truth, which in this case means to give up your life for the truth. And Chazal actually say in a very deep sense that this was the first example of Tchayas Anisim, that the Gemara says that when they came back, they found the ashes of Yitzchak by uh, the Mizbeach of the Akedah because in deep sense, the Akedah did happen to an extent. We're not going to go into it now again. You know, all these things require shirim upon shirim because these are all very, very deep topics. We're going to really just go through a little bit of the, the brief cliff notes now. But the idea... The real essence of this idea is that once Yitzchak was willing to give up his life for the truth, Hashem said, now you can live in this world by the truth. So you have Avraham, who's fundamentally rooted in this world, who tries to ascend and leave this world in terms of trying to connect to the infinite. Once he does that, Hashem says, now go back down into this world. Then you have Yitzchak, who wants to live, but is willing to transcend this world, is willing to ascend and give up his life for the truth. And once he does that, Hashem says, now you can stay in this world. So you have two polarities, right? You have one who Avram will call chesed, which is the infinite being expressed into the finite. You have Yitzchak, which is a finite that's ascending towards the infinite. And the ideal was then basically filtered down into Yaakov and Esau. So Yaakov and Esav, the ideal relationship between them was supposed to be that dynamic, right? You have, you know, polarities in every sense of life. You have male, female, you have spiritual and physical, you have uh, the world of, you know, intellect and emotion, you have the world of religion and science, you have all of these different polarities. You have Torah versus business and commerce. So the polarity of Yaakov and Esav was supposed to be the ideal marriage, where Yaakov was supposed to represent the spiritual, the Iker, as in something infinite that's being expressed into this physical world. And Esau was supposed to be the finite, the more physical partner in that relationship, which, you know, if you have any business partnership, you're always going to have different people. One person is going to be the idealist who comes up with the ideas. The other person is going to be the marketer who practically enforces it. When it comes to a community, you're going to have people who are you know, practically taking care of things. And you're going to have visionaries who are going to understand the big picture and the big ideas. When it comes to a shul, you're going to have the Rav who's giving shirim. You're going to have the people who you know, kind of are building the community around it and supporting it. So the ideal relationship was supposed to be where Yaakov represents that spiritual foundation, Esav is the physical foundation, and together they harmonize into the ideal. But Esav rejected his role because the biggest struggle is thinking of yourself as tafel. Thinking of yourself as secondary is unimportant. So in every relationship, there's always going to be a struggle of, am I actually equal? Am I important? Or am I just enabling and helping you? And you're basically the main character in the story and everything's really about you. And I'm basically just an insignificant supporting character. 
it's the fundamental human story, it's all history, it's the current political war um, in terms of, uh, without getting too political around, in terms of the, the postmodernists and, and the radical left, it, it's every fundamental battle on every fundamental level is how to justify being superior and how to tear down those who you think are taking away your opportunity to achieve what you want to achieve. So in Asav's eyes, it wasn't an equal partnership so much as Asav was getting the, the raw end of the deal, and he was going to be the one who basically was there to be the nobody to help Yaakov be the somebody. And what he did is he rejected the story. He said, I'd rather create my own hierarchy, my own hierarchy and become the king of my universe than buy into the story. So instead of helping Yaakov express the infinite into the finite, express the spiritual into the physical, I'm going to reject the infinite, reject the spiritual, and become the new leader in my own hierarchy. That's kind of, in Chazal's eyes, that's the birth of atheism, where you become the highest ranking member in your worldview. You become the god of your own universe. And it's the ultimate rise of what led to Christianity, which is a more religious atheism. It's essentially religion without religion. It's truth without law, which fundamentally is truth without truth, because without being able to implement and live out truth, uh, it's not really truth. So it, it's a fluffy version of truth. So what ends up happening now is, and this is, by the way, at the moment that Avraham died, right? When Yitzchak saw the fleeting nature of existence, he chose to basically become the God of his own finite universe rather than to devote himself to an infinite where he would be the subcategory of Yaakov and Yaakov would be the ideal. So what ends up happening now is that you have Avraham. Avraham has Yitzchak and Yishmael. Yishmael is a whole other sheer uh, fascinating topic, especially for everything that's going on in the world. It requires a much longer discussion, but Yitzchak is basically the successful filter Yitzchak gets filtered out, Yitzchak becomes the, the next stage. Then Yitzchak has Yaakov and Esav, Esav gets filtered out, you have Yaakov. Yaakov then splinters into Klai Yisrael. Klai Yisrael, you now have... When I get the live question, so let's... Yeah, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. This is, this is, I'm trying to condense a 45,000 hours here into just the 30, 40 minutes, but we're going to get there. So what ends up happening now is that now you have Klai Yisrael. Klai Yisrael is now expressed into 12 Shavim. And if you want to think of it this way, you think of Yosef as paralleling Yaakov. So Yaakov is the foundation that becomes expressed into Klai Yisrael. Yosef is, the, the role of Yosef is to connect the pieces back together. It's to be the fundamental connector, right? So to connect the pieces back into that original oneness. So if Yaakov is one split into 12, Yosef as Chazal say, reflects Yaakov and is supposed to reconnect the Jewish people back together. And the ideal is for everyone to play the role. So you have the 12 Shratim, everyone's different. You have leaders, you have people who are, you know, great spiritually in Torah, you have people who go into business, you have people who are, have these skill sets and those skill sets. You start to get the diversity, the expansion, the expression, the, the different types of flavors where you have white light that gets refracted through a prism, you get seven colors. You have music that gets expressed into the seven notes of the musical scale. Uh, you know, time gets expressed into the seven days of the week. 
and you have Klai Yisrael that gets expressed into the 12 Shvatim. The problem is, is, is multifaceted, but in, a, in essence, the real problem that is the, the entire essence of the Jewish story is what happens with Yosef. Yosef has this dream, and the dream is that the brothers are going to bow down to him. And again, Chazal say that Yosef looked like Yaakov. The Yaakov spent time learning with Yosef. Yosef had a special multicolored jacket. You know, multicolored, you kind of see the idea of all the different colors of the spectrum kind of synthesized into one. But Yosef, the young Yosef, expresses this. And, and what ends up happening is the fundamental root of every interpersonal struggle sense on a Ashkafic level, personal level, which is, on the one hand, there's this sense of them, and Chazal basically said the ideal version and the realistic version. The ideal version is they thought that Yosef was the next level of filtration, right? You have Yishmael and Yitzchak, Yishmael gets filtered out. You have Yaakov and Esav, Esav gets filtered out. You have Klai, Yisrael, and Nishvatim. Yosef was very physical, he was physically beautiful, he was combing his hair, you already have Esav attributes. So, there's this idea of maybe Yosef is the next person needs to get filtered out. But the real depth of it is the opposite. It's that Yosef looks exactly like Yaakov. Yosef is exactly like Yaakov. Because I'll have many, many different associations where they were fundamentally parallel. So maybe Yosef is actually the successor and we're the ones that are going to get filtered out. Maybe Yosef is the idea. Maybe Yosef is the next Yaakov, and we're the next Ishmael. We're the next Esav. So what do they do? Because of that jealousy, the inferiority complex of maybe, you know, we're going to pretend like we're doing the MS, but really we're trying to reverse it because we're afraid of getting filtered out. We're going to knock Yosef down. And what was Yosef's role to connect the brothers together? What did he do? He created conflict. He created jealousy. What ended up happening through the whole Teshuva story of Yehuda and Tamar and Klai Yisrael going down to Mitzrayim and the story of Benjamin is he, basically Yosef recreated the opportunity for Klai Yisrael to come back together. And he fulfilled the original idea in the dream, which is not Yosef getting bowed down to as in being the best, but Yosef being the synthesizer, the integrator of connecting all the pieces together where then Klai Yisrael becomes one again. And that Achtus is the fundamental component. And that's why you have Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef, because once Yehuda, who was the leader that sold Yosef, ended up recognizing that he made a mistake and then kind of submitting himself to Yosef in Mitzrayim, that's when Yehuda can become a real leader, that's when Yosef can become a real leader, and that's when Yosef's leadership doesn't make everyone else feel bad about themselves, but actually brings everyone together. So, you know, to bring it into live questions, here's basically the fundamental idea. The fundamental idea is, I would say, I would say twofold in terms of the call of Klai role. There's the external role that we've always known in terms of throughout history has been a question of Orla Goyim in terms of what's our impact on the world as a whole. The root of anti-Semitism has always been the same. It's always been because of jealousy. Because leadership that makes people feel bad about themselves will definitively, definitively make people hate you. So if someone's great, there are people who are great that you just love them. You admire them, you look up to them. But then there are people that are great that make you feel horrible about yourself. 
It, make you, it makes you remind yourself about how insignificant you are, about how, how much you are nowhere near what you're supposed to be. And it doesn't make you want to be better. It makes you feel worse. So the only response that you could have to such a person is to want to get rid of them. That's the Yosef complex. If someone makes you feel bad about yourself, you will try to destroy them. Because as opposed to becoming great to make yourself no longer feel bad about yourself, the much easier thing to do is to get rid of them. But if you can become a leader that inspires greatness out of others, you become someone that makes people feel good about becoming better as opposed to feeling bad that they're not where you are. And that, in the deepest sense, is the root of Klai Yisrael's after's problem. All right, so before we go into the open Q&A, like this is the most difficult thing to contemplate on any level, which is that Klai Yisrael has many different parts, right? Within the firm community, there's different focuses. There are people, as we talked about, people focus strictly on halacha, on Jewish law. Then there's Musr in self-development. Then there's Gemara Bekiya, Staf Yomi. There's Gemara Be'iyah Rashi Tosos. There's Gemara Be'iyah Brisker style, going into all the different Rishonim and really becoming a Tamlachacham, when you know, called Torah Kula Be'iyah. And then there's the world of Jewish thought, Jewish philosophy. Then there's Jewish thought, Machshava, the deeper, more interconnected, harmonistic, uh, deeper realm of Torah. And then there's different strands of Hasidus and different strands of Kabbalah and different variations, different formulations. There's people who go into business. There are people who become experts in Manda and science and psychology and philosophy and mathematics. And then there are people who try to synergize that with Torah. And then there are people who really value Eretz Yisrael and, you know, whether they're hardcore Sioni or they really just value the Kedusha Eretz Yisrael. And then you have all these different various Ashkavos. And throughout history, there's been people who go too far outside the fold, right? So you have, um, you know, if you go through Jewish history, let's let's go into questions now, okay? Is that okay? Sorry for cutting you off, but I'm just going to end off with this, which is that the biggest struggle and the biggest koach you can have is the same thing, which is the root of, of fundamentally trying to solve the Achtas problem is to see, number one, the truth within every person that you don't necessarily live life in alignment with, and to recognize that you're not where you should be as well, but not to feel the need to lower others down in order to put yourself into a place where you feel like you own the truth, but to recognize that you're still on a journey of trying to live a life of ever greater MS as well. And if you then recognize that all the parts of Klai Yisrael are part of one family, not just in a mushy-gushy emotional way, but in a fundamental metaphysical spiritual way, and that instead of what you originally had as a 12 Shratim, now we have different Hashkafos that build the full spectrum of Klai Yisrael, you start to appreciate the fundamental importance of all of Klai Yisrael. And in times of tragedy, and in these moments where we kind of have this ripple effect where something external awakens the synergy and oneness of the entire Jewish people, we're feeling that. We're tapping into that. And the goal now is not to be inspired by it and then go back to normal, but to recognize the deep truth that lies at the center of that. And you know, after the after the Q and A and the polls, I'll share one more deep idea. But again, this is this is a lot, right? This is not inspiring. This is not we can be the best we can be. This is not you know work on your midos. This is 
an opening into the fundamental gateway of taking the greatest adventure, which is the journey to the truth. And it's impossible to do this in a lifetime, let alone 45 minutes. But the purpose of giving this type of training, the first time I was on, we spoke about self-development and working on becoming your best self. Second time, talked about term business. This is a whole different ballpark. This is, this is the infinite game, which is something almost impossible to express and very difficult to do so without getting slightly vulnerable, uncomfortable, and borderline on that which is impossible to express. But there is probably no time in our lifetime that's probably better to do it now just because we're experiencing the most interesting climactic transition where we're now far enough removed from October 7th to realize the fleeting nature of it and yet close enough to recognize the importance. So with that, we will now transition. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's take a poll, three questions, then we'll get into live questions. One second. Uh, okay, here we go. Can you see the questions? Okay, here we go. First question is, how long do you think the access will last? There's three options, four options, but it shows five, but it's four. As long as the hostages are not returned, then we'll still have access. Option one. Option two, till the war is over. Option three, until Mashiach comes. Or option four, well, it's starting to fade away already. That's the first question. Second question, why do you think there's a real connection? Why do you think there is a real connection between all Jews? So three options. When people are against us, it brings out that we are one. Number two, we are a nation that wants to help each other in crisis. Number three, under all the noise, we truly love old, old Jews. They're all similar answers, but they're all saying a different point, really. Um, and the third question is, in general, why do you think Jews who have different levels of observance aren't getting along? So there's four answers to this. Answer what you think. First answer, some some have no observance and do not look at as others as part of them, both ways. Whether you're religious, you don't look at the other ones as part of you, or whether you're not religious, you don't look at the religious as part of you. Second answer is many Jews don't want any connection with Hashem and religious Jews. That's talking from their point of view, people that are not religious. That's from the religious point of view. We need boundaries not to get influenced, so we so we so we stay away from not from. So because we're religious, if we, if we start dealing with not religious people, maybe we'll become not from. Or option four, even very from communities have a hard time accepting the other from ones that are not like them. So, like trying to say, like, even if you're Hasidish, you like to stay within your crowd or Yiltfish, like we have a hard time just even going out of that zone. So those are the three questions that may answer it to the best of your ability, your opinion. And then we'll get into the live questions. Chaisar will go first. Okay. Five more seconds. Let's share the poll. Here we go. First question, how long do you think the Laachas will last? So 70% of people feel as long as the hostages are not returned. 27% of the people till the war is over. 28% of the people feel till Michelle comes. And 36% of the people already feel that it's starting to fade away. Second question. 
Why do you think there is a real connection between between all Jews? 49% of people told when people are against us, it brings out that we are one. 24% of the people, we are a nation that likes to help each other in crisis. And 28% of the people, under all the noise, we truly love all, everybody, all the Jews. And the third question is, in general, why do you think Jews who are different levels of observance don't get along? 12% of people feel some have no observance. They don't look at the, the, the religious, they don't look at the non-religious. They don't look at the religious, so like they don't like see eye to eye. 11% of people feel many Jews don't want any connection with Hashem or religious Jews. 10% of the people, we need boundaries not to get influenced so we stay from. And a whopping 67% of the people say that even very firm communities have a hard time accepting the other firm ones, not like them. So we, in general, like to stay within our very small little box, and that's what we consider comfortable. Rebrech, what do you say to the polls? What do you say to the answer? It's very interesting, actually, the last one. I think, I think it's fascinating. So I, I think there's... There's the first two, I think there's a very powerful idea, which I think is a, is a paradigm shift that can change the way people think about a lot of things, which is when it comes to any goal that's trying to be achieved, are you trying to achieve it or surface something that already exists, right? So for example, when it comes to marriage, are you trying to build a new relationship or are you trying to uncover the relationship that already exists? When it comes to learning something, are you trying to, uh, what John Locke would say, tape things onto a blank slate? Or are you trying to unsurface wisdom and knowledge that you already have embedded within your soul, within your consciousness? So when it comes to Achtas, it's the same thing. It's not necessarily something that you're trying to create as much as something that you're tapping into. Right? So if you have white light and get refracted through a prism, you get colors, right? But which one of those colors is the white light? So you can say all of them, you can say, you know, you add them all together. But when you refract oneness into two-ness, you actually get the expression. It's like a seed that grows into a tree that you have millions of leaves. They're all stemming from that one seed. So if you're part of something infinitely bigger than yourself, then every time you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself, you're tapping into that. And when you have things like this, like you're tapping into something that already exists. So Ravdasa would talk about it as you're not creating Achtus as much as tapping into an Achtus that already exists on a root level. It's not creating, it's already there. But you're making it real. You're making it real in terms of manifested. So it's there in a spiritual, like ethereal, infinite sense. On an express level, it's not yet real. And when you tap into and you feel it, you're tapping into something that already exists in a spiritual, like root sense, but you're trying to manifest and make it real. And that's the, the connection that already exists between all Jews. Right? You don't have to create the connection as much as express it. So that's also like when you get married, there's the idea that your soul's already connected. Because I'll explain that you get kind of broken into two different souls, two different consciousnesses when you're born and you're recreating the relationship that already exists. So it's the same thing. It's like when it comes to achdus, when it comes to relationship with Hashem, when it comes to relationship with yourself, when it comes to really all of these levels of consciousness and existence, it's not a practical creation that just disparate, finite things are walking around trying to connect together so much as something that's already fundamentally real that you're both trying to tap into on a root level and then express on an express level. 
What do you think of the last poll, the last question? The so, most skill so, yeah, I very small, uh, I don't know if the word small-minded, but very, they like to stay comfortable in our very small pond. So the third one, I think, is fascinating because and I was, I was just on Fox News talking about what's going on in the political arena. The, the polarity in terms of personality type, right? you can say men are different than women, you can say liberals are different than conservatives, you can say a right wing is different than the, the more of the modern types, um, you can say the chilonim are different than those who are more, you know, datilumi. There are many different ways of creating the spectrum of how you are ideologically or hashkafically, et cetera. Um, so part of it is that people like comfort, they like stability, but that's not true, right? There are lots of people who like adventure and creativity and like to get outside of the norm. So what's really, I would say, fascinating is that all of Jewish history has been that dynamic, right? You have Torah Shev which is unchanging, right? It's never has changed, never will change. No one ever comes up with a new Pasuk, right? Then you have Torah Shabbat Peh. Torah Shabbat Peh is fundamentally, the reason why it wasn't supposed to be written is it's, it was never supposed to be finitized. It was never supposed to be canonized. We were never supposed to end it. It was supposed to always, always be flowing and always evolving because it was supposed to be the growing process of expanding Torah Shabbat into, if you look at, you know, but I mean, this is kind of, if you look at human history, it's one of evolution. Right in terms of technological evolution, medical evolution, uh, evolution of uh, values in terms of the Judeo-Christian values becoming more popularized uh, by you know kind of a global setting. Well, Torah Balpet has also evolved in terms of you know if you're one of the sfarim I'm working on right now is dealing with a lot of medical and pikuach nefesh So answering whether or not you can do an organ transplant or in terms of brain death and in terms of um, a lot of fundamental, like these shilohs weren't asked in the times of Chazal, but the fundamental principles were and the extrapolation and applying principles and dealing with the back and forth of the growing expression and expansion of living a Torah life in the world as the world grows is the fundamental expansion of creativity and expressed halachic expression of truth in the ever evolving world. But you'll always have, and this always has been, this always will be, is two polarities of the main population within the Jewish community and within the world, which is the conservative-minded people and the liberal-minded people. The conservative-minded people are people who want to contain, maintain, and retain everything that was. So it's built on the premise that the best is behind us. You know, everything's kind of getting worse. We got to keep hold of everything that's good and make sure that we stop the downwards fall. And those who are creative and liberal and see the incredible opportunity and potential in where things are going, say if the best is ahead of us and we got to keep on growing, expanding, getting better, we can't, we have to get away from the past. And there are people who go too far, right? There are people who reject the expansion completely, right? That's what we call the Tudukim, right? They reject Torah Shabbat. They say that the only thing that we have is Torah Shabbat. And then you have people who reject Torah Shabbat, right? Who reject the past. So you have the original version, which is Christianity. Then you have, uh, you know, Islam. Then you have uh, the reform movement, the conservative movement. There's always going to be a question of what's going too far. And 
the fascinating thing is that you never know what's going too far. Like when the Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah, it was one of the most controversial things in Jewish history. He didn't, he didn't quote his sources. The Rishonim at the time that thought that was that was way too far. Nowadays, the Rambam is equivalent with Torah itself. Like you can't learn a sugya in Shas without quoting the Rambam. But at the time, it was controversial. So there's always going to be writing down the, the Torah Shvalpeh in Ace Lassos, meaning uh, Ravashi and Ravina said that we had to do it. That was one of the most controversial things in Jewish history. The, halachically, it was usher to write down the Gemara. Writing down the Gemara, the, the brilliance of how they did it was writing it down in a way that's not really written, so you can't understand it unless you learn it in a sugyo, understanding how to tap into the Masorah and the tradition of having a Rebbe, and a mentor to teach you. But the, 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 the back and forth of, of liberalism and conservatism is the fundamental back and forth of Torshav and Torshav is the whole story of Jewish history as the whole story of human history. It's why you always have Republicans and Democrats, even though right now it's not really liberals and conservatives, but it's a whole other story. But the idea is that there are people who always want stability and to keep things the way they are, and then there are people who always want to make things better. The people who want to make things better, they usually reject the way things are. The people who want to keep things the way they are, they usually reject the direction that people who want to make things better are, especially because people who want to make things better are usually idealists, and they live in this kind of utopian ideal of what things could be without really having it being practical, whereas people who are practical, it's boring. Right? There's no real vision or exciting... Um, mission when you want to stay in place. So if you want to inspire people, you need to be a visionary. But if you want to achieve something, you need to be practical. The goal has always been synthesizing both. That's why you don't have Torshav or Torshav Peh. You have both. The ideal people who understand, and that's why politics is complicated, because the ideal would be for politics to be the expression of truth, which it no longer is. But the ideal would be someone who is a synthesis of both ideals. But you always have, you know, party politics where it's basically a different religion, basically Jews and one. So in Israel, we had the same thing until the war, which is the Chilinim versus the Haredim. And it's the same thing going on in America. It's the same thing that always happens. But it's not choosing one value over the other as much as building a channel of communication to understand where each other are coming from. And that's the same thing when it comes to you want to start simple. You have two communities, both are from, both have a similar enough hashkafa that there's real dialogue. Those two communities in many times will never talk to each other, right? And then you have extreme differences. That is more explainable why they won't talk to each other. But the first step is communication and recognizing the value within that which you are not. And most people won't want to do that because it makes them question their identity and their existence. And if you have to question your identity, you have to be willing to give it up. And most people are willing to do that. So most people stabilize. And once you stabilize, you have to reject the other because that's the only way you can justify who you are. So the third one actually is probably the most interesting um, of all the questions. Hi, thanks. I was worried they might kick me out soon, so thank you for letting me go first. I'm just wondering though, uh, I I, mean, I haven't been to Israel during this time. I, you know, I, I yeah, I'd heard about you know all the certainly the the morale, the achdus, but but I'm wondering how much of it's being motivated right now, just simply being in a survival mode. They realize these people are out to kill us. It doesn't matter what our level of Yiddishkeit or affiliation. 
And I'm sure there are people who, you know, are just sharing, you know, certainly traumatized. So would that probably even, aren't we going to, will we have to sort of deal with that first before getting to, you know, this higher level of, you know, of, you know, of, of you know, spirituality, Mashiach. I mean, I see this as a precursor to Mashiach. And I think people definitely are more aware. This has made them more aware of, you know, our place in the world. Nevertheless, it is traumatizing. And I'm just wondering if they're going to, um, if that's, if that's something that's going to, you know, be sort of a, a, an immediate issue, uh, you know, just just staying alive, and uh, you, you know, just, and you know, I guess you know, we're, you know, we're still worried about the hostages, of course, but you know, you know, the immediate things of the war, and even seems to have spread even to you know to Iran. So, do you see that maybe as I don't want to say an obstacle, but it's just, but it's sort of a first step. I mean, you know, something that a priority in a sense. You know, people just overcoming just uh you know just the whole shock and outrage of what happened in uh you know it reminds me of pearl harbor you know in 1941 where people were you know it, it shook them up it affected the nation uh so you know so do you do you just see that do you see that really as an immediate thing before um 100 i mean we're, we're talking in retrospect because it's been happening for four and a half months yeah yeah that, it's still going without a question, on yeah without a question without a question with yeah. there's there's many different levels of analysis when you're talking about global mm-hmm. global systems and global concepts so yeah. within israel itself the unquestionable motivation from a political perspective that's why the political parties all synthesized and basically put all political differences aside that getting to a lot of Mm -hmm. relating factors as to you know the situation before and why that happened but the moment that there was an existential threat that's the biggest advantage of an external existential threat there's levels of ideals so if we're talking about which political party should be the ideal party of israel that's a conceptual idealistic conversation if -hmm. we're talking about everyone is trying to kill us there all of a sudden becomes an us against Mm -hmm. them the us solidifies interconnects and reinforces the synergy momentarily Mm -hmm. to overcome the external enemy and within the the debate between the Chilunim, the right wing and the left wing, and the you know, non-religious and the religious, and people joining the mm-hmm. army, etc. So first of all, that was completely put on hold momentarily, and a mm-hmm. lot of the reserves, you know, hundreds of thousands of reserves came back, uh, even from you know, hundreds of thousands from outside of Israel, mm-hmm. and a lot of Haredim started joining the army, which you know sparked a lot of Kedush Hashem, a lot of yeah, I, I see a lot of sociological changes that'll come about from the, you know, yeah, the willingness to be more involved in civic life. And all. I, I, well, it's, it's I mean, interesting because yeah. let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. You know, how long ago did to- did COVID happen? Um, so over four years ago. But I was one of the first, by the way, I caught it in late 2019 before it was even known. But it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was, it was we're, 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 yeah, four years ago, I really, as of March 2020, it, the whole world, you know, like kablooey, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. in a sense, it feels like COVID happened forever ago. 
Right? It feels like yeah. COVID happened like a hundred thousand years ago. And in certain yeah, sense, also, it feels like COVID never happened, right? Because there was this at the time, there was this conception like life is never going to go back to normal. Like the whole yeah. everything's going to change. The whole university system, the school system, people actually going to their work, going mm-hmm. to their like people just and everything went back to normal. So have things evolved and has there been like a seed stage of the next stage of saying what did we learn from COVID? How can we yeah. implement that? Yes. But there's always the the seed stage disappears and then the implementation of some of the ideals that we tapped into. So we'll see how it unfolds. Yeah, to, to me it just kind of accelerated things that were already happening, but that's uh, you know it just won't know until later. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Beautiful. Okay. Question. <laughs> okay, so, so the question now is how to take it a little bit to the practicality. Uh, this is a question that we always get. You know, when we have a sorrow, when we have something that's happening, then it puts us together. We try to do whatever we can. The achdus comes out. But the question is how long it lasts, like we discussed, and what are some practical things that we should do, that we could do, or like you're saying, what's our um, the mission now to make sure it doesn't fade away, keep it the way, you know, keep it the right mindset? So it's it's the classic question. It's the classic question, and there's a reason why cliches are cliched. It's, it's important. But the usual answer is also cliched. Right, which is uh, you know build relationships, try to see the best in people, try to uh, get outside your comfort zone, etc., etc., etc. Here's what I think is the actual, real practical work. It's it's like a real deep dive into self awareness, which is one of the biggest struggles individuals have is self worth. Right, a lot of people get their self worth by either viewing themselves as better than other people. Right? So you walk into a room, you look around, you say, am I better than people in A, B, and C? Because that's what I value most to gain my self-worth. If I'm better than other people, then I can value myself. If you really start getting your self-worth by trying to actualize your unique potential and trying to be the best you, then you start to become unfazed by other people and you realize that like if you're on a team you don't want to be better than everyone else you want the team to win right so you want people to be as good as they can be as well and it's not that you want people to be better than you because we're not racing against each other like no one else is supposed to be you so you're not supposed to be anyone else so then if you're being the best you and they're being the best them and together you're becoming the best collective whole it's like a cell in the human body isn't trying to out race or compete with another cell in the human body, you're all on the same team. So once you view that in an individual sense, in a familial sense, in a communal sense, in a cholesterol sense, those are hierarchies in your identity of self, then you start to realize, I'm not trying to be the best in my family. I'm not trying to be the best in my team. I'm not trying to be the best in my company. I'm not trying to be the best in my community. I'm not trying to be the best in cholesterol. I want to live out a life of truth. And I want everyone else to do that as well. And it's not the same as much as the blended synergies of individualistic 
distinction that harmonizes it into something greater. A great song doesn't have a million of the same notes being played. A great picture doesn't have just the color blue. A great idea doesn't just have one letter repeated. Its ideas are comprised of letters and words and paragraphs and building up the communication of truth. So it's the same thing when it comes to client stroke. You don't have to lower those who are different than you down to raise yourself up. And you can start on a very simple level between just building that within your own individual life of, I don't need to lower anyone else down to gain my own self-worth. I gain my self-worth by actualizing my potential, by becoming the person Hashem created me to become. Once you express that idea to its fullest, there's no difference between individual self-worth versus one other person and communal self-worth to another community or to a related hashkafa. You start easy with it, you know, a similar hashkafa. And then if you take it to its real logical extreme, you can see the value within people that actually see things very differently than you. Right? So for example, I just give you an example in a business. Let's say a person is an idea-oriented person, comes up with business ideas. Those people make no money because they don't know how to implement. They don't know how to build the infrastructure. They don't know how to market. They don't know how to sell. Let's say a person only knows how to do the infrastructure and market and sell. They don't have any ideas. They also can't make money. You need each other to build the ideal partnership to scale it properly. Let's say you have amazing ideas. You're going to become a great speaker. You just have no audience and you don't know how to write a book and you don't know how to impact anyone. So there's no way of actually, you need both. There's always a dynamic. There's always a relationship. So the first step is to gain your self-worth from being the best you, not by being better than other people. The second step is to expand that idea communally. The third step is to see the value in those that you don't necessarily agree with in terms of the direction you're going in, but you see something good in them. That's the the basic concept of the Mishnavos of, you know, who is wise, one who learns from everyone. It's not just being able to learn from everyone as an on an individual level, it's being able to always expand your own horizons of your own ideal of what you could become by recognizing that there are people who are doing things in a very different way, but they have a certain koach, a certain ability that would actually balance you out even more if you can get outside the ego of competition and actually try to just go on the journey of trying to live out a life of MS. Just uh, just to talk about that for a second, for some for a beginner, somebody who's never delved into self-introspection, uh, how would one know if he's struggling with self-worth? Just like a basic idea. I think the best parameter is the way that you talk to yourself. As in... You've never been inside anyone else's head, so you don't know what the norm is. But the conversation that's happening inside of you is literally you talking to yourself, right? So the question is, who are you talking to? Who's talking? Right? Are you talking or are you listening? Are you the voice that's knocking you down or are you the voice that's knocking you up? Are you all those voices, right? Are you an intellect? Are you emotions? Are you a body? Are you a consciousness? Are you will? So there's a whole world inside of each of us. And the starting point is to take ownership over that story, as in to utilize the 
starting point of your conscious existence, which is ratzon, which is will, to direct everything else. And that's, you know, in essence, the whole purpose of my first sefer is to understand the essence of Torah is to live a life of expressing your true potential and actualizing your unique kalchos by going on the journey to your true self and living life of MS and Torah. But to understand your self-worth, you want to think about how you talk to yourself. So a lot of people, they talk to themselves really, like you'd never want to ever hear anyone talk to anyone the way that most people talk to themselves, right? And I look in the mirror and they say, I can't believe you did that again. Like, you're such an idiot. You're a fool. Like, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep on doing that? You're never going to do that. You have an idea. I'm going to take on, I'm going to build something. I'm going to create something, achieve something. The voice in the back of your head says, no, you're not. What makes you think you can do anything good? You've never done anything good. You, every single time there's an opportunity to knock yourself down, most people don't need someone else to knock them down. They knock themselves down. Then there are people who are out of touch with reality, right? They're overly confident. They basically think of themselves as infinitely greater than they actually are. Now, is there a mile to that? Does it help in some situations? Yes, but if you're out of touch with reality, then that's just becoming a Balgaiva, an egotistical maniac, right? You become a narcissist. So building that healthy self-talk that reinforces the part of you that wants to become the best version of you is a good sense of self-worth. And best, another great parameter is whether you identify your existence relative and in comparison to other people. So if you only identify as smart because you're smarter than other people, or you're only, you know, a balmidos or a balasmidos that working on yourself because you see other people and you're doing it more than them, or you're good looking because you walk into a room and you think you're better looking than everyone else, or you're, you know, the most humble person you know because you think you're the mo- you're more humble than everyone else. Like there's a lot of ways to build an unhealthy existence. So a dependency existence where your entire life is dependent on someone else is unhealthy unless you have a unique dependency on yourself in Hashem because the struggle of trying to live a life of truth is balancing between Amun and Ishtabos, where on the one hand, what we're talking about build, building self-worth, building confidence, trying to really take ownership over your story and your life, it's very difficult to communicate how many people struggle with, at least on the initial stage, taking complete dependence, independence and ownership and blocking Hashem out as well, right? So you can start out by being completely dependent on other people, right? You only love yourself if your spouse loves you. You only love yourself if you have people that you think like you for being the person that you think they want they want you to become. So most people live as a reflection of what they think other people think they should be, which is ironic because you'll never know what people think of you or what they want you to be. But to build it healthily, you want to take complete ownership and become independent of what other people think, not to gain your self-worth from other people, to become someone who becomes a chooser. So you choose what you think about, what you focus on, what you're doing with your time, what you're learning, what you're building, what you're creating, what you're achieving. You start to build a vision for yourself. You build a direction for your life. You start to utilize your time. You start to value your time. You don't give out your time for free because you actually want to do something with your time and everything that you do with your life is a choice. And then you start to actually become someone who is choosing their life. But you do that as a reflection 
of trying to connect to Hashem as opposed to kind of blocking out everything which includes Hashem, right? So that's kind of the next stage is once you take ownership over your mindset and your time and your decisions and your life, you don't take complete ownership. You recognize the source of everything that you're able to do still comes from Hashem. So most people make one of those mistakes. They either live in eternal dependency on other people or they break away from dependency but then become completely independent from everybody, including Hashem. The key is to basically do both, independent from people, dependency on Hashem, but a sense of independence to still completely depend on myself to make the decisions to build the life that I think I'm supposed to live, which is really the one that you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with your life. So the short answer to your question is that there is no short answer to that question. It's uh, one of the most powerful questions one can ask. But the real simple answer is to just pay attention. To Like self-awareness is an endless journey of trying to literally just step outside and be aware of what is. So the first thing is like, go through your day. How do you talk to yourself? How do you use your time? What are you doing with your time? Um, what kind of people you have in your life? Are they positive? Are they people that are going to help you move in a better direction? Do you have a vision for your life? Are you heading in a good direction with, with your life? And the more that you build a healthy internal environment, the easier it becomes to see the value in other people because you don't need to knock them down in order to justify your own existence. Okay, let's go to the next live question you're on. Um. Yeah, hi. Um, so I don't know if uh, this is a question that you would want to answer. It's um, I need to formulate it like as I ask it. Um, so uh, you mentioned before about there are people who are holding, you know, they want to hold on to the past. And then there are people who are, you know, ready and willing to embrace the present and the future. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give the example like during COVID. Um, I, I, I wasn't like, you know, into the news. I didn't know who was sick and who was dying. You know, I was in my house with my kids. We were like in a little cocoon and we were having a great time, you know, but when I didn't, because I didn't know what was going on out there, like, I can't say I was, I, I davened so much because, you know, I, I only heard about it. If I spoke to somebody and told me, oh, did you hear so many people are dying? Some people are sick. And then I heard about it. Right. So, um, I feel like there are a lot of there are a lot of people that they they don't have access. They don't have iPhones. They don't have I mean, you know, smartphones. They don't they don't watch the news. They don't they aren't aware so much about what's going on in the world, what's going on in Israel. Um, like I just had a friend, you know, friends will ask me, so what's going on? Right. These are people who are choosing not to um, have the technology in their home. Right. Mm-hmm. And. They don't even, I, I feel like, and I don't, I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm just, I'm curious about it. You know, like they don't end up feeling this achdos because they aren't really affected by what's going on. They're really, really unaware about what's happening in Israel or what's, ha- I, 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 a lot of people are, you know, cause they just, they don't have access to it. 100%. So it's a fascinating question. And it doesn't really stop there because it's always, Maharal talks about how everything is potential, right? So when it comes to your particular question, there are levels of analysis in terms of each state. So for example, you can be flooded with infinite data 
right? You can watch the news all day, every day. You can be in every WhatsApp group. You can be on Twitter and X and you know every social media platform, and you can expose yourself to every data point possible. And because you have all the data, now you can be justly and uniquely able to tap into the ultimate possible form of feeling what's going on. Or you can completely remove yourself. You can be someone who not only isn't, doesn't have access to the live stream, you don't have access to anyone who has access to live stream, right? So you have three friends, you make sure that those three friends are like you, that they also don't talk to anyone who's tapped in. So those are two polarities. Then you can start building some nuance, which is making a choice of, do I value being connected to what's going on in the world? Yes or no, right? If yes, why? If the answer to yes is because I feel like Part of my responsibility is not to be a, an isolated individual, but I'm part of a family, a community, I'm part of Clydesdale, I'm part of the world. And I feel a sense of responsibility to be, you know, let's not start from Adam Harishan. Let's start from you today, right? So you know that there's a situation going on in the world. And let's assume that you can now start from scratch. So you can choose, do I have any social media platforms? Yes or no. Do I have any news outlets? Yes or no. Do I go on any news outlet websites? Yes or no. If yes, how often, when, and how much, and what's the point, and which ones? And you start making educated decisions on how to craft the reception of data to reinforce an articulated goal. Most people do not live that way. Most people live as a result of whatever impetus enters into their world. They don't choose they don't choose the starting point of what's entering in. So they have whatever's on their phone, or if they have internet, whatever's on the internet, if they have social media, whatever's on social media, if they have the news outlets, whatever, they don't craft it. And most people also not nuance. So it's yes or no. But if you go with a goal, as in I want to attain certain information so I can achieve a calculated goal because I feel like that's what Hashem wants me to do, then there's a way to do that. So within the current framework of what you already know, there's plenty to be connected with. There's plenty to have them for. There's plenty to work on for yourself. And I always say the best way to help other people is to work on yourself. Right? You want to inspire others, inspire yourself. You want to teach others, te- educate yourself. You want to you know, help people in need, work on yourself because that will help you help a lot of people. The, the best way to feel connected is to become someone capable of helping those who you can help when you're connected with them. So just getting data information is not necessarily helpful. Davening is amazing. But again, the two levels are basically, number one, choosing an infrastructure of how to tap into a framework that you want to tap into as opposed to it controlling you. Most people who have social media, WhatsApp, news, news outlets, whatever it is, most of those people are controlled by the medium. They're not using the medium. The medium is using them. Right, That itself is a topic we can spend hours talking about because that's the, the fundamental struggle of every person living in the world right now is that most people are not expressing out their goals onto the world as much as the world expressing itself onto them. So people don't have ownership over their time, their thoughts, their emotions, their goals. They're not building something. They're just basically being used by the systems that use them. But the the real answer for that question is 
to do it a priori, which is to really first think about the goal at hand. What do you want to build and achieve? And then build habits and systems around your goals to help you achieve them as opposed to most people who don't have the goals to start with. And if they do, they can't achieve them because they're overloaded with all the things that are holding them back from achieving their goals. So the simplest way to live a brilliant life is to build a life that allows you to have the ability to live out the life that you think you're supposed to live. So that's building good systems, good habits, creating the right goals, having amazing relationships teachers, and then building your life in alignment with that. So I, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm just wondering, like, you know, in the in the broader sense, like this unity in order, like in order for it to last, do we need that more people should be aware of what's going on? Like there are people who are choosing not to, like, they're not exposing themselves. They do, like, so then what happens? I think, I think it's, a fair, it's a fair question, but here, here's what I would say. There's levels of knowing what's going on, right? So I've, let's say, you know, my, my platforms have reached, you know, probably over a hundred million people uh, in the past four or five months, right? Part of that is because I, you know, took on a responsibility of being very on top of the narrative, things are going on and trying to inspire people as everything broke into chaos. But there's no need to know everything that's going on. So there's the existential struggle that Kleinschel is facing. And then there's the day by day, detail by detail, minor breaking story, major breaking story, minor updates, major updates. So Everyone at this point knows the general, the general struggle that Kleinschel is going through. To the extent that each person wants to personalize how much they know to improve their level of sensitivity and emotional connectivity so they can improve their sense of achdus, that's a person-by-person cheshbon, right? In terms of you, again, that's what we just went through. In terms of feeling a responsibility to inform everyone, so then you'd have to, and again, realize that no two people are the same. And no two people need the same amount of data, which is really the personalized empowerment perspective of each person needs to have mentors and people that can help them help themselves build the type of personal type of way of answering that question. There's no answer that would fit everyone, just as there's no kind of, you know, single generic type of way to answer any fundamentally individual question. But the real answer is that the more that you know what you're trying to achieve, the more you can build a system around yourself to help you achieve that. And the way that you framed it is the simple answer is that I think everyone knows enough to be able to start the journey of increasing their level of achdos. It's, it's really in every area, in, in any area in life, that, that, you, that you feel that they don't get it the way you do. So you feel that there's a difference. So then you have to stop and think, um, how can I have achdos with all of those people out there that we don't see things the same way? Whether it's the question that we just heard, or talk about everything else in, in Yiddishkeit or in uh, beliefs, whatever it is. That what do I? How am I supposed to relate to those people if they don't take it the way I do? 
right? So that's really the... Yeah, that's the question, right, I think. Right. So, yeah. so it's a deep question, and this is really what we're discussing tonight, and it's something to think about, of how do we have Achdos in a bigger, in a general way, if they don't see this, this the same way I do? That's it. Even like have respect for it, you know? like Exactly. So you have people that are always going to be different, they're not going to see the same level as you. Now the question is, how do we... You know, relate to each other with Achdos understanding. No, they chose not to. I chose. I choose. Yes, they choose. Yeah. This is this is where we are. You're always going to have it, no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've also are. found it's also interesting. If you have a certain view, it's very rare to change someone else's view to align with yours. And the reason is is because very few people are willing to give it up. Right, so you can combat it by saying you're wrong, I'm right. That's not going to work. You can be in a unique position where people don't yet have a view, and you're educated, right? So you, you know, you're a mora or you're a rabbi teaching in a yeshiva seminary, and people don't yet have a perspective, and you're building. That's why Jasper explains the most powerful and the greatest responsibility anyone ever has is to be the first person to share a perspective on a topic when someone hasn't yet had exposure to a perspective on a topic because that will usually become their perspective on the topic, right? The first impression is the deepest. But another perspective is that if you have a perspective, you have an idea, sharing it, sharing it with your friends, not in a way that here's what I'm doing, you should do this as well, but the love that you have for that which you believe in is much more impactful than sharing why your approach is better than someone else's approach. And yeah. then that approach allows people to listen to what you're saying, even if they have a different approach, without feeling that you're attacking them, and then allows them to consider it. And once you do it from a frame of sharing as opposed to preaching and teaching, it allows it for, be, for it to be a dialogue as opposed to a transformational experience, where because they know you're not trying to change their life and make you make them give up their life to align themselves with your will and the way you see the world, you can have a conversation and then they'll say, wow, I never thought of it this way. And maybe they'll share something that enlightens you and you say, wow, yeah, I never thought of it that way. And all of a sudden you have a conversation and that's where you basically now help each other expand beyond your horizons. So it's not easy. And again, because the moment that you share, if you're doing it face-to-face, -face, they'll immediately, you know, first, Say, is this person trying to change me? Feel attacked. Yeah, they'll feel attacked. They'll feel judged. They'll feel unappreciated. They'll feel like, oh, you know best. You know, what makes you think you're so great? That's why the Gemara says that no one can give tochacha anymore. Because anyone who gives tochacha, everyone will look at them and say, who are you to give? Who are you to judge me? You think you're perfect? So the best way to give tochacha is not to share why what people are doing is wrong and why what you're doing is right, but to actually just share what you believe is the truth in a way that comes from a place of sharing as opposed to judgmental preaching. It's not easy to do. It's a very rare skill set and it takes lots of practice, but the best educators I've ever seen uh, mastered that skill set. And it's needed in any relationship. Talk about spouse, your kids, Anytime you want to influence anything, and that's that's why it's tricky because you want to influence, and 100%. they feel it. Hundred percent. But the, but the real question is when it's a situation that actually somebody sent in a question. I've been through struggles in life, and people out there have ruined my life. 
do you think Hashem wants me to have Achdos and Shalom? It takes us to that question of making peace with people that really, you know, you don't feel the right thing is to make peace with them. Or how to. It's not it's very hard because they, you know, whatever whatever happens. Yeah, so this is probably a 40-hour conversation because it really gets into every level of Hashkacha and analysis because you you want to ask, number one, is this the same person that did this to me? Number two is, does Hashem want me to have a relationship with everyone? As in, I don't need to be friends with everyone. Right? I can, And again, we talked about root level, express level. Like what they did was wrong. Does that mean that they are a bad person and maybe they did sugar and maybe they're no longer the same person? Also, do I, is there a value of me wanting to fix a relationship with someone who ruined my life? As it may be the real struggle is for me to forgive them, realize it came from Hashem and move on, right? Do I have to go back as in there's the emotional damage? So there's the trauma that's going to be reawoken every time and what if they haven't improved and they don't want to be better? Am I supposed to have a relationship with someone who's still broken, breaking me, broke me? And so th these are very complicated questions. And there's, it's not that there's a right answer. It's not that there's one level of like, here's the real question. It's like layers and layers. There's the question of when someone ruined my life, did they ruin my life? Do I know the whole story? Um, was my life supposed to be ruined? It happened through them. Um, did they intend to ruin my life? Maybe I also wasn't the, the person I am today back then. Maybe, you know, I kind of let them ruin my life or maybe I was part of that ruining my own life and they were kind of just the, the impetus that kind of had it all toppled down. These things are, you know, psychoanalysis is fascinating because it, it allows you to recognize, uh, you know, Carl Jung had the, the Arizal on his desk and said he learned everything on Arizal and Freud as you know, self-hating as he was as a Jew, um, you know, there's, you know, in terms of how Chazal discussed the neshama, the ruach, and the nefesh, and how Freud kind of talked about the, the inner structure of our psyche, um, th these are these are really fascinating questions because you don't have time to have a relationship with everyone in the world, right? So you're not supposed to be friends with everyone. But the people that you are friends with, why are you friends with them? Right? There's different types of friends. There's friends that you don't even know why you're friends with them. You grew up with them, you sat in class next to them, your neighbors, then there are friends you had good experiences with, there are friends that you have the same, you know, you you only talk about one topic because that's the one thing you have in common. And every single time you see them, you just have the same conversation, nothing new happens. And then there's friends that you share values with, that you grow with together, you go on a mission in life with together, that you do things with on a meaningful level together, and the greatest form of that is marriage. So you want to choose the people in your life. There's no mitzvah to have a deep relationship with everyone in the world. To not hate someone is a different thing. So to forgive, to allow yourself to overcome the trauma that someone inflicted upon you, and all the layers that go into that and the difficulty that goes into that, to revisit it, to open it up, and to recognize that maybe it actually helps build you into the person you are today and it actually destroyed you to allow you to birth yourself into a new version of you, which is a much more genuine, real version of you. And then that's how all growth works. And sometimes you don't even have to talk to the person. You can literally just forgive them. And sometimes they don't even know the damage they did to you.
as in you were going through something and something they did the way they did it, how they did the timing, how they said it, what they didn't say, like you were just a passing person in their story, but in your life, they are one of the main characters in your story. They don't even know. So it's not really about them anymore. It's about you. And once it's about you, that's where you say two things. Number one is the result was good, even if the event was horrible and you have to find the good in the result, which takes a lot of time and patience and self-awareness. And number two is you say that I don't love what they did, but I know that even if they are out of touch with their potential and they messed up, I'm able to tap into that root component, which is the, the famous Gemara of the, the ideal way to view a bad person is that I hate what they did. I don't hate them, right? So, and the real depth of that is that at root, that's why, you know, we're coming up to Pesach soon. We say at the Seder, we say, uh, right? You're supposed to knock out the teeth of the Rasha. So I don't do a lot of gematrias, but one of my favorite gematrias I've been sharing at my Seder since I was like 10 years old is that if you take um, the word Rasha and you knock out Shinav, you subtract um, Shinav from Rasha, you get the gematria tzaddik, right? And when we're in the womb, when we call Torah Kula and we say, we make an oath that we're going to become a tzaddik. So our ideal true root self is perfect. And sometimes we mess up in life, but the root doesn't change. And you have to knock out Shinav, you have to knock out that surface layer to get people back to their root. Um, and sometimes you get that from Hashem. Hashem kind of knocks you up a little bit and, and pushes you around, but it just wakes you up. That's a wake-up call for you to really go on the journey of life. But sometimes someone does that to you. And when that person does that to you, they might be acting out the story of Russia. but when you get to the point where you are able to consider, forgiving us also, by the way, very often you forgive them not to forgive them, but to heal yourself. All right, so one of my favorite lines is that Anger, anger is like anger. drinking. I think there's an echo. Anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. All you're doing is hurting yourself. So really, you're thinking, do I have permission to forgive them? Should I forgive them? But really, the question is, are you willing to allow yourself to move on? And not to move on as in pretend it didn't happen, but to move on as in to grow from it, not to just kind of move away from it. So it would it would be convenient if, if no one had this type of question, but I think you know, anyone who's lived life even a little bit has gone through uh, some of these types of situations where people have really done things to you and it, it, you kind of feel like they're holding you back. If you can give yourself permission to forgive them, you'll actually give yourself permission to allow your life to become everything it could be. Beautiful. Let's go to the last live question, then we'll go to closing. Okay. Amir? Hi. Yes, hi. Um, I wanted to say, I'm asking with everything you said, and I've been really trying to live my life. I'll pay the suggestions that you've done. But now I'm having a hard time with with this whole war that the Hamas took the videos themselves of what they did to people. And then people are denying that they did it. To me, I have a hard, very hard time, um, like with that, 
and even like politically sometimes with certain things where they prove something beyond a shadow of a doubt, but then people deny it. I live very realistically and I have a hard time to associate. It's easier for me not to deal with these people because I, I somehow I can't have a respect for somebody who doesn't see the tr truth. And it's not an opinion that is it a truth. We have pictures. We have we have verification. If it was an opinion, I could go along and I do go along all the time. But where there is actual data and and physical proof of something and people deny it, how do you deal with that? How do you how do you have a respect for somebody who could just lie about something that they could see? So that is, it's a fascinating question. It's a brilliant question. And there's many different layers of analysis in terms of how to approach it. One is to actually go to the starting point of number one, why people are being fed a narrative that would make them believe this. And there's always been deniers of everything in life. Right? There are people who deny God. There are people who deny the Holocaust happened. There are people who deny um, morality. There are people who deny that October 7th happened. And you have pictures and videos. They'll either refuse to watch the picture and videos or they'll say that they're made up, right? You, I just saw an AI ad that pretended to be, you know, someone saying something and I knew it didn't happen. And, you know, basically what was a fake, but anything can be anything. So the question becomes twofold. Number one is how do you know anything, right? So do you know, you know, how do you know that you're not sleeping right now and this is a dream? Right. Hopefully it's a good dream. How do you know that you have purpose? How do you know that you exist? Right. Maybe this is all simulation. How do you know that I have consciousness? Right. Maybe you're aware of your own existence, but you don't know if everyone else in the world is actually an AI robot and you're the only real person that ever existed. Right. How do you know the sun is going to rise tomorrow? That's a causation question. You actually don't. There's nothing that's you know, right. definitively. So then you get into how you know anything's real. So you know things are real because you trust, right? How do you know that when the next step you're going to take, you're not going to fall to the center of the earth? How do you know you get on an airplane, you know, it's, everything's going to be okay? So there are statistics, there's data, there's ways of building a sense of trust. And part of that is just how you can function in the world. So then how do you know God exists? How do you know that Judaism is correct? How do you know that anything is endless? So there are stages in life, there are ways of building answers to questions, there are ways of defending premises and truth, there are ways of building answers. But then in today's day and age, there's infinite data always, all the time, and we live in a data war, which is a narrative war. And then you have people who control what data people are being fed controls the swarm. So the people who believe that October 7th didn't happen are not to blame. They've been fed all the data necessary for them to digest the narrative that reinforces that. Whether some people are culpable and responsible for believing it because they want to believe it, that's a whole other question. The real question is, why are people at the top feeding that narrative? Why? Like the professors and the colleges. Professors in the colleges, Hollywood, the elite left, the, the, the you know, liberal media, CNN, BBC, why do they do that? So that's a whole different question, right? That's something which you know, I've been working on 
a different project, um, I wear, you know, a hundred different hats. You know, we took off the Tony Robbins hat tonight. We did more of the Balmach Shava. There's the Gemara Bi'in, there's politics, there's philosophy, there's psychology, there's business. This is more of a, a, a fundamental, existential, truth-oriented, postmodern question. So let's kind of build the spectrum of, uh, you know, this is this might be a good thing to end off with. You can maybe, I'll maybe share one more idea after this, but if Klai Yisrael is, is ultimate synthesis, which is the synthesis and marriage between the infinite and the finite, the spiritual and the physical, you have different variants of people who take different sides of that equation, right? So you have what we'd call Islam, which again, there's a hundred different variants of Islam, but especially the Hamas terrorist extreme version of Islam, which is really built off of of Ishmael, which is a whole show that we didn't get to give tonight. It's a hatred of this world. It's a love of spirituality. It's a love of the world to come. It's an obsession with the world to come. It's an obsession with spirituality and the truth, but a hatred of the physical world. So they hate everything physical, limited, corporeal. They're much more extreme in their being machmir against connecting to the physical world. There's no synthesis. There's no harmony. There's no oneness. There's an obsession with death because that means you get to leave this world and go to the world to come. There's an obsession with death of killing other people because this world is meaningless and fleeting. And there's an obsession with the reward you're going to get by leaving this world. It's not a fundamental expression of becoming a manifestation of your telling what came and living a life of truth as much as a hatred of everything that's not absolute truth, which is not infinite, which is not spiritual. So it's a hatred of this world. And then you have Buddhism. Very Buddhism, sad. Buddhism very sad is a, and wasteful. It's very sad. And but wasteful. Truth to it. There's a truth to it. And they're tapping into the truth of a spiritual and Iker being more important than the tough one. Right. And all but, but then rejecting everything else. And then you have Buddhism, which is a softer version of that, which is a rejection of the physical, but also a rejection of any goal or destination. So it's rejecting everything in this world, but also not really striving to anything in another world. And then you have atheism, which is a rejection of anything infinite, anything <laughs> spiritual, any, any destination, any purpose. And then you have Christianity, which is kind of in between atheism and Judaism, where it kind of is a soft acceptance of God but no real consequential nature to living out that truth in this world because there's no there's no system of living out truth, right? There's no law, there's no Torah. It's just basically be a good person. But it lacks the structure of expressing truth in this world. So it's basically you get to live in this world, you get to believe in God. The only thing you need to do to get another world is to believe, but there's no action-oriented and there's no real becoming perfect because there's no way to become perfect because there's no system of living that truth. So the postmodernists are those who are so you know, evolved intellectually that they believe that there, are no, there is no truth, there's no purpose to the world, we're advanced monkeys, there's no real source to life and there's no purpose to life. There's no truth. There's no morality. There's no existence. There's no meta existence. It's the essence behind the transgender movement because if there's no truth and there's no God, there's also no truth in terms of con concepts. So there's no concept of male and female. 
And basically, the reason why it's being pushed is because if we can break down the concept of male and female, we can break down the concept of truth, and then people can embrace the truth what they believe, which is that there is no truth, which means that you're going to live a couple of years in this world, and as opposed to devoting your whole life to get some fairy tale on the other side that doesn't exist, just enjoy whatever life you have while you're here, and kind of live in the whatever utopian world that you want to live in with no consequences. So Israel is the biggest, the biggest enemy to that ideology. Because Israel represents the worst of what they fear America might become, right? America was founded on a conflict, right? Are we going to be better than Europe and be more of an open religious community? Or are we going to be enlightened atheists that reject the monarchy, Christianity, and everything that came before? And it was a machlokas, right? In God we trust, but, you know, half of the founding fathers were atheists. Israel is the only religious democracy in the world, right? So Israel represents the worst nightmare of the left, which is a democracy that embraces religion, where they wanted to basically move further in their evolutionary theory, which is away from religion. Donald Trump you know, is bringing back the religious founding foundation of America and reinforcing that structure. And they are trying to push this transgender LGBTQ, anti-religion, science, open everything, no truth, no meaning, no purpose. And Israel is a religious democracy that if allowed to exist is a beacon of hope to what America could become, which is their worst nightmare. So they, from the very beginning, literally first two days, everyone was kind of supportive of Israel when Hamas was you know, just basically committing the worst terrorist attack in recent history. And the second that they got an excuse to fight back, I mean, the second Israel retaliated, they went full out into anti-Israel because if they can destroy Israel, they can break down the concept of religious democracy. And if they can break down the, the structure of religious democracy, they can make sure America doesn't revert to becoming a religious democracy you know, the abortion law that was passed was a huge, um, I mean, it wasn't truth as in within Torah, abortion is a very complex idea, right. but it was a religious win um, for the kind of, you know, Republican side. And, you know, they've been going crazy to break down religion, tradition, break down American history, rewrite American history. And basically just- Yeah, how do you rewrite history? That's the same thing, that you're just rewriting it. This gets back to Torah, if you believe the worst is behind you and that racism and American history is founded on racism and everything's bad, just clean the slate. Erase the past and just start new. There's no importance of the past because there's no importance of tradition because there's no importance of religion because there's nothing good behind us. We're just moving to something better. And that's the whole philosophy of postmodernism is that nothing matters. There is no truth. So live whatever life you want. And that's why they hate Israel. Israel is the only country that is openly, explicitly religious that also is founded on the principles of modern Western society. And Israel cannot exist if America is to become what the left, the radical left wants America to become. So they're trying to tear down Israel from the bottom, which is, you know, basically the funding behind all these rallies and why from literally day two of this war, of everything that the left could do, they've done to make sure that they equip everyone in the world with all the data they need to be anti-Israel. 
So your war isn't really with the people. They're just sheep, right? They're just basically following whatever they're being told on TV. You're kind of really dealing with like, why are the people who are feeding all this? Like, why are they doing it? And that's why it's because it's really just an ideological battle of they are trying to get the world away from truth and religion. They believe it's dogmatic and close-minded and of the past. And they're not the brilliant implementers of their ideology because they don't openly say what they believe. They just basically make it happen. So they just implement their ideology on the practical kind of sheep front level where they're not actually sharing their ideology. And most conservatives are not philosophers, right? They're just kind of, you know, simple people trying to keep their way of life. So they don't even understand why this is happening. Like, you know, talk about problems. Like Ben Shapiro doesn't talk about why the left does what he does. He just fights back. He's a brilliant data analyst. Uh, even Jordan Peterson doesn't really, you know, have a Torah understanding of life. So he's just dealing it from his brilliant perspective. But there's no one on the political arena who's actually dealing with, the alt left on the fundamental philosophical plane. No one's talking about this. It's just, you know, we hate Israel. We love Israel. We want transgenders. We don't want transgenders. No one talks about the ideas. No one talks about the why. No one goes to the root. So you just have basically front battles. And that's, you know, how a political arena has always worked. Like there's no been, there's no open dialogue. It's just crazy. So all the millions and really at that point, billions of sheep who are have been so openly against Israel, it's just because they're being fed a narrative. And the real question is, why are they being fed a narrative? And the answer is because this is a fundamental ideological battle uh, about the future of Western society. And the people who do not want religion in that discussion really want Israel out of the world. Okay, okay let's go to closing now. For coming on tonight. It was a beautiful share. Very, very deep. Got to listen to it a few times. Again, if anybody wants to join the WhatsApp uh, groups, just WhatsApp 732-314-1710. We'll send you the group number. Or Menachem will send it to you in the email. Also, you can go to MenachemBarnfall.com and sign up to get his emails every week. The speakers on the show next week, we're going to have Revdo Pinson. going to have a very deep topic. He's very into uh, deep spirituality. So we'll see what the topic will be exactly. Hopefully, Metzshem will be deep and meaningful. Please join us. Everything will be recorded. It'll be on MetzshemMenachemBernfeld.com. If anybody has any questions, please email CoachMenachem at gmail.com. Tonight's share is 177. If you want to listen to it on the phones, it'll be at 732-305-9011. And if anybody wants to be in touch with Shmuel Reichman, his website is ShmuelReichman.com. You can get in touch with him there. If you have any questions or anything, Menachem will put in the email also his book, if anybody wants to buy his book. What's it called again? The Journey? What's, what's the name of your book, Reichman? The journey to your ultimate self. Your journey to your ultimate self. Um, again, thank you to all the advertising sponsors like the Scoop, Elinario, Fighton Central, Chayat from JCN. We'll go to Menachem first and then for Rechman to wrap it up. And Coach uh, Menachem, floor is yours. Wow. Um, yeah. First of all, thank you so much for being here tonight. And um, it was very deep. A lot of concepts. Like you're saying, we can sit here for hours and hours discussing it. But it boils down to, you know, the purpose for life. Um, Yiddishkeit and the fight. This is the fight that we're here. A lot of Amun Um, Not basing things on, you know, your self-worth. Not based on others. Understanding who you are. That inner chatter that we have. Understand where we are. 
how we feel about ourselves. And like I mentioned, this is this is so important for any relationship to understand what do I feel, how do I believe. And I would love if everybody would think the same way as me. But when they don't, how do we sit and talk? How do we discuss and now listen to their point of view? And uh, talk about chinuch, you know, you're a, you're a teenager. They have so much to say and you're thinking to yourself, no, it's not the way it's supposed to First, listen. What are you feeling when they say certain things that you don't like? To understand their point of view, discuss it. And the challenges, you know, when you say it, you know, you want to impose. But they feel it. They're not going to take it. You know, they want somebody to listen. If you can listen, then eventually they can hear themselves and get to a place, a safe place where they can hear it and then make choices. So, yeah, it is deep. So thank you so much. And uh, we should be able to take the concepts more practical. You know, a lot of it is not so easy for practicality to see where we can put it in our day, the Akdos, the Sholem, and to forgive others, even though sometimes they did. it looks like they, they did something wrong. So thank you very much. And uh, hopefully it will be a lot of, uh, with a lot of Siat and Shemaya, we should be able to take what everybody needs in that session. Wrap it up. As Ashwin will say, nice and quick. So I, I wanna I wanna end off by basically saying that even though there's a certain sadness to the fundamental realization that it does seem like the Achdus is fading, I think there's a very inspiring idea here, which is at the root of basically all of Torah life, and it's one of the most powerful ideas. You can ever hear. As the Vilna Gon, the Ramchal, the Maharal, the Ramban, and many others explain, everything Hashem does, every aspect of Torah always has three stages. The first stage is, is a gift. It's a reflection of what things could be. It's a recognition of the ultimate goal, the destination of the truth, but then you lose that. And the reason why it's taken away and why you lose it is because that's not real. That's just given to you as a gift. The goal then is to rebuild it yourself. And once you rebuild it yourself, then you get to make it real. Because then it becomes an expression of choice, of free will, of effort, of actually creating it. And then you get to that third stage where it's the same thing as that first stage, but this time it's real because this time you actually earned it, you built it. As Ramchal explains, that's the essence of life. It's why you're not born perfect. You're born as a reflection of what you could be, but then you're born into this world imperfect. That's why the Gemara, Nida Dafam says, you learn everything you're supposed to achieve in life in the womb, and then the mal hits you on the mouth, the angel hits you, and you lose it. So the Vilna asks why. Like, why, why teach it in the first place? Why lose it? And he says the same idea. Because what you were taught in the womb, your purpose in life, everything you're supposed to become, that was just showing you the gift of what you're supposed to become. You lose it so you come into this world and build it yourself. It's the same idea with marriage. It's why Chazal say that Adam and Chav are built as one. The goal of marriage is not to be perfect and be one. It's to build that oneness. So Adam and Chav are originally one and Dragnus being, as Rashi explains. And then they're broken into two so they can come into this world and rebuild that oneness. And it's the same thing for everything, for Achdus. It's, we experience this incredible Achdus. In a certain sense, it was a gift. It was incredible. But we didn't build it. We experienced it. And it's fading away, but not because we're losing it, but because we were shown what we're supposed to be creating and achieving and, and molding. But again, we talked about this. The Achas already exists. We're already one people. 
one nation, one family, the Yisrael, but to build it, to experience it, to understand it, to make it manifest, to actually build the paradigmatic structure so that when we walk through the world, we actually experience life that way, that takes a lifetime of nuance and development. And it's really, it's the same thing we talk about Torah Shemesaf and Torah Shemesaf. We have the same thing coming out of the Purim and Pesach. And Pesach, Chazal say, was the time of open miracles, time of Makos, the plagues, and Kriyas Yamsa, splitting of the sea, Mount Torah, Hashem gave us the Torah. And it was a miraculous time where there's Nevuah, there's prophecy. We don't have that time anymore. No more miracles, no more open prophecy, no more open revelation of the Kodesh Baruch Hu. Where to go? So the Vilna Gon, the Ramchal, it's the same principle. Explain that that was the first stage, was the gift. But now we live in a second stage, a stage of Purim. There's no longer open miracles, but we have to find the Nisim as the Rambansa, the Nisim Niglam, or Megala, the Nisim Nisim. The open miracles of Pesach are Megala. They reveal that everything in life is the will of a Baruch Hu. Everything is miraculous. You find Hashem within everything, and that's Purim. There's no open miracle in Purim. But when you see how you put all the pieces together, you start seeing the Yad Hashem within everything. That's why Kimu Vikipu, they re-accepted the Torah by Purim because, as Chazal say in, in Shabbos, uh, uh, that the initial Kabbalah Torah, acceptance of the Torah, was forced. Why was it forced? There was no free will. Because how can you not accept the Torah when Hashem's openly performing miracles? But by Purim, where there's no open miracles, we have to choose to see Hashem. They chose to accept the Kimu Vikipu. That was real Bechira. And we live in a time where that's really our choice. It's not easy to live a life of truth. It's not easy to see Hashem. It's not easy to strive. But it's the greatest life imaginable. And that's what we talked about, you know, giving up this life for another life. We talked about choosing only this life over another life. The greatest truth is that you don't choose one over the other. It's by living a life of MS and devoting your life to something infinite and building your olam haba in this world by recognizing that the world to come is nothing other than an expression of everything you became in this life, that you live the ultimate life in this world and the next world. It's not one or the other. It's not even both. It's that they're so fundamentally one. As Chazal say, when you're really living that life, you live a life of olam haba in this world. And the goal is to recognize that this stage of inspiration is really just building a path to what we now get to build together. And living a life of MS is, is not easy, but it's so worth it. And I would say that the two most important principles to recognize is that real achdus is not sameness, it's oneness. And oneness is all those different colors, you know, Katanas Pasim of Yosef, all those different colors built into a synthesized oneness. And you play music, it's not the same notes, all those notes blended and synthesized together. It's all the parts of Klai Yisrael synthesized together. It's synthesis, it's marriage. It's not sameness, it's oneness. And the real way to build oneness between two people, like the, the best way to do it, if you want to really know the deep truth, is to first build achdus within yourself, which means synthesizing all the different aspects of your character, spiritual, intellectual, emotional, physical, all the different aspects of your personality and emotional creativity, imagination, all the different parts of you and build real synthesis within yourself, really start building that internal world. And then you can expand outwards. And the first amazing opportunity to build ideal achlos is with the spouse. Then you expand outwards and you build an amazing family. Then you realize you're part of a community. And then you realize you're part of a larger community part of Klai Yisrael, and you just keep on expanding, and you recognize that that hierarchical structure of synthesis 
it starts and ends with Hashem. So Hashem is the foundation of it all. He's the root of yourself, but he's also the ultimate oneness that everything leads towards. And there's no greater journey in life than going on that journey. It's one of self-development, of self-actualization, of living life, of purpose, of expanding past your boundaries, of embracing every struggle as building you, not breaking you. And breaking you in order to build you is how you build muscle. You break the fibers down, you build them stronger than before. And that every aspect of Torah is there to enable you to live a life of meaning and purpose and truth. And then if you can do it on an individual level, you can do it on a communal level, you can do it on a clubby level, and you can keep on expanding. And uh, Bez Hashem will continue to grow and to expand stage by stage and to really build the ultimate achdus. Thank you, Rabbi Reichman. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. Um, March 3rd with Rabbi uh, Shondo Pinson. Thank you again, Rabbi Reichman, for coming on. Appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine, as always. Keep doing all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you, thank you. Good night.